Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. Dear Special Agent Mulder, I'm writing to you for help. Several years ago, I had an experience I could not explain. I was lying in my bed when I felt a presence in the room. Though I was awake, I felt that something had taken control over my body. I don't remember much else, but I woke up three days later pregnant with my son, Izzy. That was 18 years ago, but now it happened again. I was in bed and could swear I heard Cher singing, the one who was married to Sonny. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is the postmodern Prometheus. X-File number, classified. The plot. The episode begins in the guise of a comic book. Mulder and Scully receive a letter from Shania Berkowitz, a single mother who claims to have been mysteriously impregnated while unconscious by an unknown presence 18 years ago, resulting in the birth of her son Izzy. Now, following a similarly unexplained attack, she's pregnant again. She's heard about Mulder's expertise in the paranormal from the Jerry Springer show and wants him to investigate. Mulder and Scully travel to rural Albion, Indiana. They meet Shania and her son Izzy and learn that the description of the creature that attacked her with a lumpy head and two mouths is very similar to a comic book character invented by Izzy. His monstrous creation, called the Great Mutato, is inspired by a mysterious creature that's been seen by many of the locals. You gave a description of the intruder. You said that he had a gross face and lumps on his head? Mm -hmm. And two mouths. I don't know if I mentioned that. Funny. Sounds just like this. Oh, that! That's the Great Mutato. That's the comic book character my kid Izzy created. What's going on? These are agents Mulder and Scully from the FBI. The Federal Bureau of Investigations? We were wondering how this suspect in your mother's case looks exactly like this. The Great Mutato. Well, because I, I've seen him, too. You've seen the Great Mutato? Yeah, a lot of people around here have. Has it crossed neither of your minds that what you say you saw that night fits perfectly with this creature that your son created? Well, yeah, but... That don't mean it didn't happen. Izzy and his friends take the agents to a wooded area where they see the Mutato from a distance. They meet an old man who angrily tells them that there are no monsters and sends them to see his son, a geneticist named Francis Polidori. Dr. Polidori shows them his experiments studying the Hawks gene using the fruit fly Drosophila. This presentation includes images of a fly with legs growing out of its mouth. He tells the agents that the same kind of experiments could, in theory, be performed on humans. Who sent you here? Your father. My father is a simpleton farmer. He understands nothing of my scientific achievements. What achievements are those? What makes you think you would understand them any better? Well, I'm a scientist for one. Well, then you probably know that once in a generation, perhaps once in a lifetime, a truth is uncovered. It's thrust mankind into a shocking new consciousness, turning accepted notions of our very existence on their head. Consider relativity, double helix, and now the homeotic Hox gene, for which I will undoubtedly have my place among the Columbuses of science as a visionary leader of men, yes? What do you want me to do with these, Dr. Polidari? Never mind. What is the homeotic Hox gene? She's a scientist. Ask her. I, uh, I believe that it has something to do with, um, growth and development. 
If you two will excuse me, I really don't have time for this. I have to travel tonight to the University of Ingolstadt to deliver an international address. Sir, unless you want your scientific achievements to end up as a footnote on the Jerry Springer show, I suggest that you make the time. Jerry Springer show? Afterward, Mulder tells Scully that he believes that Dr. Polidori, acting as a modern-day Victor Frankenstein, has created the Great Mutato. Later, Dr. Polidori's wife Elizabeth is knocked unconscious and is attacked in the same manner as Shania. At the crime scene, Mulder and Scully find a chemical residue from an agricultural agent used to anesthetize animals, which leads them to suspect Dr. Polidori's father, who is a farmer. Dr. Polidori comes to his father's house, angrily confronts him, and murders him. Later, Mutato, who lives with Polidori Sr., finds his dead body and tearfully buries it in a barn. Mulder and Scully go looking for Polidori Sr. and find a shallow grave and photographs of the dead man with Mutato. Meanwhile, Dr. Polidori leads an angry mob of townspeople to his father's house, demanding that Mulder and Scully turn the alleged murderer over to them. The agents find Mutato hiding in the basement as the crowd gathers upstairs. Someone accidentally sets the barn alight and in the ensuing confusion, the mob realizes that the agents are protecting the monster in the basement. That's him. Uh. That repulsive physiognomy is the vilest perversion of science. Created by whom? A pale student of my most hallowed arts, whose life was taken by that which he gave life by his own horrible creation, by that monstrosity that you see before you. Who's he talking about? My father. <gasps> no. He can talk. Your ears deceive you. It's a trick! Mutado speaks to the crowd and explains that he was created 25 years before and that he's the result of a genetic experiment by Dr. Polidori. Unbeknownst to his son, Polidori Sr. rescued Mutato and cared for him, but was unable to provide a friend or a mate for the boy. The old man attempted to emulate his scientist son's experiments and tried to create hybrids from farm animals. Mutato asks Dr. Polidori to create a female companion for him, but the scientist says that he cannot, that Mutato was a mistake. The townspeople realize that the great Mutato is not a monster after all, and Dr. Polidori is arrested for the murder of his father. Mulder feels that it's unjust for Mutato to not get a mate, and so he demands to see the writer, Izzy. You should go, Mulder. The prisoner's in the car. This is all wrong, Scully. This is not how the story's supposed to end. What do you mean? Dr. Frankenstein pays for his evil ambitions, yes, but the monster is supposed to escape to go search for his bride. There's not going to be any bride, Mulder. Not in this story. Where's the writer? I want to speak to the writer. In a fanciful, if not imagined, scene... Mulder and Scully take the matters into their own hands and take Mutato along with the townspeople to a share concert. The episode ends with a shot of Mulder and Scully dancing, which slowly turns back into the comic book scene at the beginning of the episode. Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for the postmodern Prometheus. The postmodern Prometheus <laughs> is a really bizarre uh, but pretty cool episode. I know a lot of people like it. And it's got that kind of a cool comic book theme going along. Not the whole time, but in a, plus the first black and white episode that the X-Files did. So it was interesting to see it that way. You know, it's kind of comical. It's It's got, you know, little funny, weird twists and stuff. But um, I definitely liked it. It's just, it, it's not one of my favorite ones, but I know it's kind of, it's kind of a popular episode with X-Files fans, so I'm not going to knock it because it wasn't bad. It was, you know, it's well done and everything. And it even kind of has an open ending a little bit because you're not sure 
that the ending that they gave us is actually real, but they don't tell you if it is or not. Uh, it does end up as the last frame of a comic book type of thing, so it's a big hint that when Mulder wanted to see the writer, the writer wrote a happy ending. So you can look at it that way or in X-Files fashion. You can take the ending and read something else into it if you want, I guess. So that's kind of a cool twist at the end. And it's a nice break from the usual type of Monsters of the Week. Um, it's definitely a Monster of the Week episode, but it's a twist to the, uh, you know, how they normally do it. So a nice little break from the, the norm. So for my ratings on this one, compared to all X-Files episodes, I would give it probably, I'm basing this on my preferences, and it's going to be a little bit low. It's like a 7.5, maybe, maybe a 7. Uh, most people's ratings are going to be higher on that one. It's well done, but it's just not one of my favorites. On the mythology, it is not a mythology, and I'm trying to think if there's even any mythology references in here uh, to make it a hybrid, but I can't think of anything. There's uh, no mythology references in this one that I can think of. For the sequelizer, I never really thought about that. This has a pretty good, I would say it has a high potential for a sequel, even though his father is arrested. You know, he's, he's still there. You could have a whole sequel to this episode written in the comic book type of fashion where it really is a comic. You know what I mean? Where it's a, an actual comic book story. You could have a, a nice sequel to this and I never thought about it before, but I'd actually be very interested to see the sequel on that if they did it. But we'll, as we go, I guess we'll find out if they do that or not. I think that's everything. So let's head down to the chem lab right now and see what Agent Angela has for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for the postmodern Prometheus. Hello, agents. Well, this would turn into a pretty long segment if I talked about everything I like so much about postmodern Prometheus. As tough as it would be to pick only one, if I had to choose an X-Files episode to watch on a loop while stranded on a deserted island, this would be it. It's one of my top favorites, along with being David Duchovny's favorite. The whole thing is the perfect comic book story, as far as its structure, and we see that imagery at the very beginning, with the opening of Izzy's Great Mutato comic book. I could go on about how much I enjoy Shana and Lizzie Berkowitz's characters. I think they're some of the funniest, most likable, and most memorable side characters out of the whole series. But I'm going to jump ahead to the first scene with Mulder and Scully on their way to meet with Shayna after she's written to Mulder about the bizarre way she ended up in a condition. One more side note, Cher's music might be viewed as a rather dorky addition, but it takes all the scariness out of the great Mutato breaking into people's houses, knocking them out with animal tranquilizer, and committing what amounts to date rape. This episode ended up making me a Cher fan, I admit it, and I remember going out and buying her next CD that came out not too long after Postmodern Prometheus. Anyway, on the car ride into town, Scully's reading out loud the letter from Shayna, telling this too crazy seeming story, and Mulder's one-liner is just too perfect. Scully, do you think it's too soon to get my own 1-900 number? Of course, so much of Mulder and Scully's dialogue in this episode is nothing short of perfect, writing-wise, so this may not be the first time I say this. It always makes me wonder, aside from legit X-Files cases, it's anyone's guess how many letters, phone calls, etc. Mulder and Scully must get from hoaxers, 15 minutes of fame seekers, or just garden variety crackpots. Several episodes at least could be made from the best of those, I'm sure. When Scully gets to the part in the letter where Shayna mentions Mulder going to investigate the werewolf boy, you can tell by the tone of Scully's voice that this is the first time she's heard of it. She might as well have commented, Really? You wasted time and FBI travel funds on something that ridiculous? 
Scully's the one who finds the great Mutado comic book and plants the seed of an idea this may be a hoax, and that Mulder's humoring them. Soon after, we're at the famous Muskrat Meadow campground that was used as the nighttime park setting, and we get to hear Scully's take on cultural stereotypes and the persistence of people's beliefs in unverifiable local legends of monsters that they project their own fears onto. I love the moments at the end of her speech, when they appear to be alone, with their debate and ideas, debating of the Great Mutato, temporarily forgotten. They don't find the Great Mutato, but they are pointed to the monster creating Dr. Polidori by his father. This guy does everything possible to rub them the wrong way, and you can tell it's, that's his standard M.O. He doesn't even take the agents seriously until Scully mentions his scientific achievements might end up as a footnote on the Jerry Springer show if he doesn't cooperate with them. Then Boulder brings up the idea of why wouldn't someone want to create life in their own image, just because they can. Scully's right, though. We already have that ability, through procreation. The next memorable moment is when Mulder compares Dr. Polidori to Victor Frankenstein, and Scully's alarms that he'd reduce him to a literary stereotype. Indeed, the same kind of thing she's commented the townspeople are doing with their belief in this local legend. Mulder and Scully then pass Dr. Polidori's house, which is covered with a striped fumigation tent, which always resembled a circus tent to me. Unfortunately, they don't find the monster in there either, and all they get is knocked out by the cloud of smoky tranquilizer. Notice when they wake up that Scully's holding a newspaper with the headline, FBI Agents Whereabouts Unknown, which leads one to believe that they were knocked out for three days, along with the mad professor's wife. The miserable look on Scully's face says it all. I imagine her thinking, how do we keep getting in these situations? And inevitably, I'm going to keep following Mulder into them. Of course, she always will. The townspeople soon get all riled up, accusing Izzy of pretending to be the monster. Scully uncovers exactly what that animal tranquilizer is, and it leads them back to the great Mutato, who has sadly discovered and buried his murdered father in the barn. They're soon joined by a cultural stereotype of a mob with their torches and pitchforks. Now, if there's one part of this episode I think is weak, it's the scene of where the deformed son tells everyone his story, interspersed with shots of barn animals and the people they're supposed to resemble, which I've never seen much of a point in, honestly. The whole thing drags on Winford far too long, and it ends up being nearly cavity-inducing, as far as building up sympathy for the so-called monster. I think the writers could have made it briefer and done more with less. Indeed, anymore, I fast-forward through this to the next scene with Mulder and Scully. There's not going to be any bride, Mulder. Not in this story. Where's the writer? I want to speak to the writer. Finally, we get to the iconic ending with our heroes taking the great Mutato to see a share or share impersonator performance. Honestly, I no longer pay attention to the monster once Mulder extends his hand to Scully and they start dancing. There's a longer scene of them together here, and I have always wished it had been left in. If anything elevated these two to OTP status, this was it, in my mind. I'll never get tired of this moment. Ever. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence with X5.5 Postmodern Prometheus. Original air date November 3rd, 1997. Written and directed by Chris Carter. When Victor Frankenstein asks himself, Whence did the principle of life proceed? and then as a gratifying summit to his toils creates a hideous phantasm of a man he prefigures the postmodern Prometheus, the genetic engineer whose power to reanimate matter, genes into life, us, is only as limited as his imagination is. In this episode, Mulder and Scully investigate reports of a mysterious creature that has impregnated a middle-aged woman they find that the monster, nicknamed the Great Mutado, is the genetic creation of a Frankenstein-like doctor. The Great Mutado is at first ostracized, but later accepted by his community. 
Carter's story draws heavily on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and particularly on James Whale's 1931 film version of the story. The script had been written specifically with singer Cher and actress Roseanne Barr in mind, but both were unavailable at the time of shooting. Talk show host Jerry Springer appeared as himself, and Chris Owens, who appeared in later episodes as FBI agent Jeffrey Spender, played the Great Mutato. The episode was filmed in black and white, with a sky backdrop created to imitate the style of old Frankenstein films. Owens wore makeup and prosthetics that took several hours to apply. Going into the fifth season of The X-Files, series creator Chris Carter noted, We know we were going to be hitting these very dramatic marks, which were the mythology episodes, and we wanted to lighten, or leaven, the season with quirky episodes. Carter wanted to write a Frankenstein-inspired episode, but found it difficult to reconcile Mary Shelley's unbelievable tale with the style of the show. To achieve his vision, he wrote a script that blurred the real world with the X-Files reality, and that had a distinct fantasy element. Carter combined elements of the original story with fairy tales and elements of folk tales. In order to make the episode as moving as possible, Carter sought to echo elements of James Whale's 1931 film version of Frankenstein. He later noted that by using modern science, I took an old style, which is black and white, and an old approach, which is kind of a James Whale approach to science fiction, and came up with a story about a lovelorn monster. The idea for the genetic engineering story was developed with the help of the series science advisor Ann Simon. Carter visited a friend of Simon, a scientist at Indiana University in Bloomington, who had been able to genetically manipulate files so that they grew legs from their eyes. After Carter had created the character of the Great Mutato, he discovered that cartoonist Matt Groening had already created a character with the same name, although with different pronunciation, for a comic book entry of The Simpsons. Carter contacted Groening, who gave Carter permission to use the name. Hox genes, a subset of homeotatic genes, are a group of related genes that control the body plan of an embryo along the craniocaudal or head-tail axis. After the embryonic segments have formed, the Hox proteins determine the type of segment structures, for example legs, antenna, and wings and fruit flies, or the different types of vertebra in humans that will form on a given segment. Hox proteins thus confer segmental identity, but do not form the actual segments themselves. An analogy for the Hox genes can be made to the role of a play director that calls which scenes the actor should carry out next. If the play director calls the scenes in the wrong order, the overall play will present it in the wrong order. Similarly, mutations in the Hox genes can result in body parts and limbs in the wrong place along the body. Like a play director, the Hox genes do not act in the play or participate in limb formation themselves. The protein product of each Hox gene is a transcription factor. Each Hox gene contains a well-conserved DNA sequence known as the homeobox. Hox genes are thus a subset of the homeobox transcription factor genes. In many animals, the organization of the Hox genes in the chromosome is the same as the order of their expression along the anterior-posterior axis of the developing animal, and are thus said to display culinarity. Drosophilia melanogaster is an important model for the understanding body plan generation and evolution. The general principles of Hox gene function and logic elucidated in flies will apply to all bilaterian organisms, including humans. Drosophilia, like all insects, has eight Hox genes. These are clustered into two complexes, both of which are located on chromosome 3. The Hox genes are so named because mutations in them cause homeotic transformations. Homeotic transformations were first identified and studied by William Bateson in 1894, who coined the term homeosis. After the rediscovery of Mendel's genetic principles, Bateson and others realized that some examples of homeosis in floral organs and animal skeletons could be attributed to variation in genes. Definitive evidence for a genetic basis of some homeotic transformations was obtained by isolating homeotic mutants. The first homeotic mutant was found by Calvin Bridges in Thomas Hunt Morgan's laboratory in 1915. This mutant shows a partial duplication of the thorax and was therefore named bithorax. It transforms the third thoracic segment toward the second. Bithorax arose spontaneously in the laboratory and has been maintained continuously as a laboratory stock ever since. The genetic studies by Morgan and others 
provided the foundation for the systematic analysis of Edward B. Lewis and Thomas Kaufman, which provide preliminary definitions of the many homeotic genes of the bithorax and antinopatia complexes, and also showed that the mutant phenotypes for most of these genes could be traced back to patterning defects in the embryonic body plan. Cher's music plays a large role in the postmodern Prometheus. Chris Carter, having written the episode after spending a summer listening to Cher records and developing a fixation on the singer. Carter knew that Cher's half-sister, Georgianne Lapierre, was a major X-Files fan, and Carter learned through Lapierre that Cher herself was intrigued by the show and would be interested in making an X-Files guest appearance. Sitcom star Roseanne Barr also expressed an interest in guesting on the X-Files, and Carter wrote the part of Shania Berkowitz specifically for her. Barr, however, was unavailable at the time of shooting. Her projected role was filled by Patty Tierce. While Cher passed on the proffered cameo appearance performing as herself, a decision for which she later expressed regret, quote, I wanted them to ask me to come on and act, and then they just wanted me to come on and sing. Just to come on and be myself wasn't anything I'd want to do until I saw the finished episode. Had I foreseen the quality of it, I would have done it in a heartbeat. Cher did authorize the use of three of her tracks on the episode's soundtrack, including Walking in Memphis, heard at the episode's conclusion, while ostensibly performed on stage by celebrity impersonator Tracy Bell, filmed in long shot or from the back or overhead as Cher. Although Bell was credited for the role, Cher's fans responded to the episode's premiere with online speculation as to whether the singer had pseudonymously, I can't say that, appeared in the episode. Tabloid talk show host Jerry Springer appeared as himself. These casting choices went against a long-standing tradition on the X-Files of only casting actors who were not well-known. Seinfeld regular John O'Hurley had auditioned for several roles on the show, but Carter had not previously thought of him as an, quote, X-Files actor. For the part of Dr. Polidori, however, Carter considered him the absolute perfect casting choice. Stuart Gale, who played Izzy Berkowitz, was a non-actor who was sitting on the back of a truck when Carter passed. Carter convinced Gale's father, who was initially suspicious of the director's credentials, to let Gale travel to Vancouver to take part in the episode. The characters of Izzy's friends were also played by inexperienced actors. One was a snake handler on the set of the X-Files feature film, the shooting of which overlapped that of season 5, and the other worked at a Vancouver coffee shop that Carter frequented. The Great Mutato was played by Chris Owens, unrecognizable in heavy makeup. Owens had played a younger version of the Smoking Man in two episodes of season four and was later cast as the recurring character of FBI Special Agent Jeffrey Spender. During his audition, Owens noted, Chris said, Okay, did you ever see Elephant Man? What I'm looking for is dignity. He's got dignity, but he's definitely mutated. After Owens heeded Carter's instructions and attempted to bring dignity to the audition, Carter requested that he try it again with less autism. The postmodern Prometheus is the most obvious reference to Frankenstein made by the series, although traces of the story are seen elsewhere in the first season episode Young at Heart and the sixth season episode The Beginning. In addition, the series' overarching mythology revolves around shadowy syndicate leaders who salvage alien spacecraft for their own technological use and create human-alien hybrids. The episode contains themes relating to motherhood and sexuality. According to Film Studies writer Linda Badley, this episode and Season 4's Home foreshadow Scully's impending motherhood and her realization in following episodes Christmas Carol and Emily that she had been used to create a human-alien hybrid, Emily. Diane Negra, in her book Off-White Hollywood, American Culture and Ethnic Female Stardom, points out that while the great Mutato impregnates both Shania Berkowitz and Elizabeth Polidori without their consent or knowledge, it is an oversimplification to label the monster as a rapist because both Berkowitz and Polidori desire for children through unconventional means. Thus, Utado's acts allow for the two women to get what they desperately desire in a moment of magical resolution. Eric Bumpus and Tim Mournville, in their book Cease Fire, The War is Over, propose that the episode, and by extension the series as a whole, is a rejection of modernity's naturalism, and an acceptance of post-modernity's mystic supernaturalism. The two argue that, while in stereotypical great science fiction, the monster created usually runs amok, in the postmodern Prometheus, the creature is a lovable success. Furthermore, the Indiana townspeople represent the religious nuts who in the end turn out to be right. 
Bumpus and Morinville consider them the secondary heroes of the episode right after the great Mutado himself. Despite her physical absence from the entry, Cher's presence can be felt throughout the narrative. Negra argues that Cher's flamboyant and self-authored body is used as a metaphor for the possibility of self-transformation. In addition, her voice, heard via songs like Walking in Memphis, is associated with the idea of circumventing patriarchy. Negan notes that Cher's music is used in scenes during the Great Mutado's sexual encounters with women. Negra asserts that this juxtaposition of sound and image cues our perception that we have entered the realm of Carnival where the normal order of things is inverted. Todd Vanderwerf of the AV Club reasons that the ending was not the actual conclusion of the episode, but rather the fanciful and elaborate happy ending that was concocted by Izzy Berkowitz, the writer of the comic book, after talking to Mulder. In this manner, Vanderwerf notes, The episode abandons logic and reality, and for lack of a better word, transcends. Megan Deans from Tor.com postulates that the entire episode never happened, from a canonical perspective due to the entry's comic book setting, the various meta-references, and the happy ending. As for now, I'd say this case is closed, so the final word on postmodern Prometheus... Not everybody's dream is to get on Jerry Springer. What's out there for postmodern Prometheus? First review this time around is on the Unwelcome Commentary blog. It reads, This is not only Chris Carter's attempt at a Frankenstein pastache, it's also his attempt at writing his very own Darren Morgan episode. Not that we can blame him. For so long, his name has been synonymous with monotonous narration and conspiracy junk that it's unsurprising he'd want to branch out and grab some of the spotlight himself. Miraculously, this is a wonderful tour de force of an X-Files hour, creating another small town of caricatures and stereotypes, but wrapped up in a gorgeous black-and-white horror story. And I'm a huge fan of episodes where Scully looks bored out of her mind, and this certainly is one of them. The importance of Cher to the story could have easily translated as a weak gimmick, however, it's in the monster's identification with her 80s weepy mask and her love for her deformed son that makes him such a fan. It's interesting to see such sweetness in an episode, which is pretty horrifying in terms of subject matter. In general, the horror is covered up by the comedy, with genetic rape and weird allusions to bestiality rendered pretty darn hilarious. If there's one area of weakness here, it's in the inconsistency of the tone. There are certainly elements that inspire thoughts of classic universal monster movies, but there are also elements too similar to average X-Files episodes, so we have segments of the same electronic score playing during different scenes, and Mulder and Scully still debating the nature of the monster via laborious monologues. While the episode is pretty stunning already, it could have been better if Carter had gone all out in his interpretation of a 1950s monochrome horror movie, played up the silliness instead of drowning it out during certain moments. The Postmodern Prometheus is a visually beautiful episode, from the comic book framing to the Danny Elfman-style score repeated throughout. There's also that stunning ending with Cher singing and Mulder and Scully dancing. I don't know how anybody can see that moment and not be moved in some way. Grade A. So what do I think? Visually beautiful. Oh yes, I wholeheartedly agree with that. I remember the very first time I saw it, I wondered why the creators chose to film it in black and white, but it just works so well. I would also have to agree that Cher's presence is so wonderfully done. With the great Mutado being a fan of that movie, because of that kind of mother's love he's never known. This sums it up pretty well. Sweetness in the midst of some dark and disturbing subject matter. Up next, I've got some excerpts from the AV Club's pretty extensive review of Postmodern Prometheus. It reads in part, A dream I keep having, and I know sharing your dreams is the lowest form of discourse, so I'll keep this brief. I'm back in the town where I went to college, a small Midwestern city filled with brick buildings and tree-lined avenues. 
For some reason, everyone I've ever met has gathered in front of some sort of amphitheater, like we're coming up on the end of a long-running TV show, and the producers have brought everybody back for one final bow. But as the night stretches on, and I see more and more faces of people I haven't seen in years, I start to realize something. Not everybody is here. So I take leave of some of my friends to find everybody else. I board a train, because in my dreams, I always travel by train for some reason, and we head west, deeper into the past, toward a camp I attended as a teenager. Along the way, I find more and more people, some I've forgotten about, but remember the faces of, tucked away in some small corner of my brain. And then, inevitably, before I get to the source, to the beginning, the dream stops, and I wake up lacking. For whatever reason, I've always had a hard time with the notion that people can't hang on to each other forever. I'm not talking about death here. Death has always struck me as an inevitability it's not worth worrying about. I'm talking about the fact that to make anything of your life, you have to, necessarily, leave a good number of people behind, or they will leave you behind. I grew up in a small town where I knew everybody in my graduating class, as well as I knew anyone I'd ever met, but now, those people are all very far away from me, both physically and emotionally. Could I call on them if I were back in South Dakota? Probably, but it wouldn't be the same. Eventually, you have to move on, and that leaves little gaps, little holes that, if you're lucky, get filled by new people. If you're lucky, you meet someone to spend your life with. Maybe you have some kids, and you have your parents until they die, but that's about it. That's all you can really count on. And so, if you're like me, you hang on too tightly, even if it's only on a subconscious train. For this reason, I've always had an odd affection for small-town stories, particularly on television, where the people of the small town inevitably become a kind of surrogate family for each other, and arguably, for us. Postmodern Prometheus is a weird mashup of a bunch of things Chris Carter, who wrote and directed and received Emmy nominations for both, found interesting, including Genetic Engineering, Frankenstein, as both novel and movie, the old universal horror movies, comic books, metafiction, and sympathetic monsters. It is, roughly, a very direct adaptation of Frankenstein, but it's been skewed to make sense in modern times, and it's been tossed into the middle of a broad example of the X-Files comedic type. But like all the best of the X-Files episodes, there's a deep sense of loss in the middle of Prometheus. A sense of loss that manifests in the fact that Mulder can't find a happy ending to the story without purposefully asking the writer to concoct one for him, an ending that's probably not even real. Lost and loneliness were the twin emotional engines that drove the X-Files. Whether it was a grand example like Mulder losing his sister, or briefly his partner, to dark forces or something far subtler like the teenager who gets his heart broken in Jose Chung's From Outer Space. Even on the broadest possible level, the show is, in some ways, about the loss of regionalized myths, replaced by an all-consuming national myth. Mulder and Scully, well, specifically Mulder, have been called to a small town in the middle of nowhere, a small town that may as well be a Hollywood small town, for how it seems to consist entirely of small town types and standing sets on the studio backlot. Like all of these episodes from the show's first half, it was filmed in Vancouver on location, so the show's ability to evoke standing sets in actual places is kind of impressive. The reason they've been called is an unexpected pregnancy. Shayna Berkowitz discovered an intruder in her house one night, a horrifying, lumpy-headed kind of monster. She passed out, perhaps because of drugs pumped into the air, and when she woke up three days later, she was pregnant. But that's not the weird part. The same thing happened to her 18 years ago, resulting in her son, Izzy. And even that's not the weird part. Because after that event, Shayna had a tubal ligation. She shouldn't be able to get pregnant. Yet here she is. She's thinking aliens. Mulder says he's not sure he believes in that anymore. Even more troubling to me, however, is the fact that literally every member of this little town as, is portrayed in as condescending a fashion as possible. These aren't characters so much as their types, but Carter, crucially, doesn't seem to realize this. He's got Scully spouting nonsense about how people in the middle of the country see fit to pattern their lives after Jerry Springer and tabloid covers, and outside of the Berkowitzes, who have a certain kind of idiotic dignity, the mon and the monster and his father, 
the show doesn't really bother to contradict this. Carter has fun playing around with the idea of a mad scientist living in these people's midst. And John O'Hurley, then best known for playing Jay Peterman on Seinfeld, is a marvelous choice for the plot. There's a scene where he has a conversation with Mulder and Scully about his experiments, and every line is punctuated with thunder and lightning, and it's basically the X-Files version of the Simpsons rake gag, where it goes on so long that it becomes tiring and then wildly funny again by the end. But where Carter understands very specifically what he's doing comedically with the mad scientist, the other townspeople are often portrayed as, gosh, aren't people in the middle of the country weird? Again, he sort of gets away with it because of the Berkowitzes, and to a degree, he has to do this to make scenes like the one where the town forms a mob bearing pitchforks and torches believable, and that scene is necessary for him to really get the Frankenstein part of the story right. But The X-Files is always a show that was at its best when it was celebrating how weird and wild the United States can be, how it's a big, strange place where only things odder than monsters hiding in the night were the people terrorized by these monsters, who were idiosyncratic oddballs. But one of the things that drives the show, I think, is that so many of the people Mulder and Scully meet, monsters and normal folks alike, are people who lack that essential other half, people who are constantly searching out something compatible and not finding it. Now in many episodes, this leads them to kill, but in Prometheus, it leads an odd man an old man, no matter how unethically and immorally and haphazardly, to create, to try to build something better, even as he always fails. Strictly speaking, the idea that this old man created most of the town in an attempt to find a mate for his only son by impregnating women with farm animals slash human hybrids is completely ridiculous and repulsive if you think about it too much. The episode's attempt to let the monster off the hook when he admits to everything he did but not to killing his dad, shouldn't work because you can't believe the townspeople would just be okay with this, no matter how gullible. Don't we all hope that we'll get to the end, lying on our deathbeds, or facing down the firing squad, or tucked in the back of a car to go spend life in prison and get a reprieve? Don't we hope that someone will turn to the writer and ask for something better, even for just a little while? And then maybe we'll all get in a chain of cars, or maybe a train, and head through the flat midwestern afternoon towards a better place, a better day. And we'll open the doors to the club, and everyone we've ever known or cared about will be there. And just for a moment, we'll all have a single, perfect moment of happiness. And then maybe, we'll be able to look up and face what inevitably comes next. As far as my two cents, why can't I have dreams like that? I almost never remember any of mine. But in all seriousness, this review gets pretty deep and thoughtful into the philosophy behind postmodern Prometheus, and it definitely makes for an interesting read that goes by quickly. Check out the links to the full text of both these reviews on our show notes page. My final word on postmodern Prometheus, I want to speak to the writer. Character profiles. But these aren't humans, Profiles in character. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. This week's profile, The Great Mutato, played by Chris Owens. The Great Mutato was a genetic creation of Dr. Francis Polidori and the monster from the eyes of Izzy Berkowitz, Shania Berkowitz, and the townspeople of Indiana. Mulder and Scully began an investigation upon receiving a letter describing in great, de- great detail the key events involved with an alien abduction. The woman who wrote the letter, Shania Berkowitz, had been watching the Jerry Springer show when a mysterious entity entered her home, knocked her out with gas, and then impregnated her. Mulder and Scully began investigating, but her description of the intruder was not so much alien as it was based on a comic book entitled The Great Mutato, written by her son, Izzy Berkowitz. Izzy agreed to show the real Great Mutato to Mulder and Scully and led them to a remote clearing where they laid out peanut butter sandwiches as bait. 
Mrs. Berkowitz had discovered all of the peanut butter in her house missing after the incident, in addition to hearing share music. Sure enough, the great Mutado appeared to eat the sandwiches, but was scared away by the agents who attempted to pursue him into the woods. However, they encountered old man Polidori, who told them that there was no monster to be found, and the agents left. Izzy, meanwhile, recorded conversations between Mulder and Scully, and very soon the town believed that they would be on the Jerry Springer show and were very enthusiastic about Mulder and Scully being there. However, the agents met Dr. Polidori and learned of his bizarre science experiments involving genetic invention and creation that resulted in mutant flies of his own design. Mulder and Scully believed that Polidori thought of himself as some sort of Dr. Frankenstein and that the Great Mutado was his creation. Armed with this theory, the agents were sure that the so-called monster was nothing more than a horrific human experiment. Word spread that the monster was supposedly a hoax and the town's appearance on Jerry Springer would not happen, resulting in a furious backlash against the agents. The townspeople set out to prove the existence of the monster who had impregnated yet another woman, Polidori's wife, Elizabeth. Outraged at this turn of events, Dr. Polidori sought his father and murdered him. As it turned out, old man Polidori had been giving shelter to the great Mutado in his barn, protecting and taking care of him after his son created the being. Polidori dead, the great Mutado was devastated and buried him in the barn. Mulder and Scully went to find old man Polidori, but instead found a reporter and the great Mutado himself. They were just in time as a mob on townsfolk, armed with torches and pitchforks, descended upon Polidori's home and burned the barn to the ground. At the urging of Dr. Polidori, the mob turned its attention to the monster. The townspeople looked in horror and grief upon the great Mutato, whose face was disfigured beyond even recognition as a living human. There were two mouths, three eyes, and numerous lumps and folds of flesh. Quietly, the great Mutato begged for acceptance and love from the people whose lives he wished he could know. He mentioned his love of Cher, as he had a shrine dedicated to her in his basement, and how she loved a disfigured boy in the film Mask. The townspeople were taken aback by the great Mutado and pitied him. Izzy Berkowitz even declared that he was no monster at all, despite the incensed ranting of Dr. Polidori. As Dr. Polidori was arrested for the murder of his father, Mulder and Scully were unsure what to do about the great Mutado. Sympathizing with his sad story, they surprised him by taking him to a Cher concert where he had more fun than ever before. Before the night was out, Cher asked the great Mutado to dance with her while she was still singing her song. Shocked by her offer, the great Mutado held Cher's hand and walked with her to the dance floor without saying a word. shoes and I boarded the plane Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain W.C. Handy Won't you look down over me Have you checked your email? I found these in my email this morning And now the female with the emails Agent Angela Hey everyone! First off, I want to give a shout out to a couple of blogs now following XFilesTruth.com, Taylor Hogan's and J.R. Wells82. If any of you have a WordPress blog, you can follow us and you'll get an email every time we have a new episode. A great way to stay updated. Next, I want to bring up a comment from Agent Mystery from a while back posted on our website. It says, Hi there. I have no words to explain how much I love your podcast. It is the best website I ever found about the X-Files. I like the way you write on the podcast, and I have to say, you all have a big talent in writing. Keep going with your amazing work, guys. Wish you success with your podcast, Agent Mystery. Also, some more exciting news brought to our attention on Facebook from Richard Whistle. There's going to be an X-Files audiobook release on Audible Books to be released on July 18th, 2017. Of course, it's got David Gillian, Lone Gunman, and William B. Davis all performing. Very cool, and you can pre-order it now on Audible's website. Last but not least, we got a mention on Twitter from the Radio of Horror Shows podcast. Thanks, you guys. Hope you enjoyed ours. Well, that's what I've got for this time around. If you haven't already... Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, 
and we'd love it if you drop us a rating or a review on iTunes. We also love hearing from our listeners, so you can shoot us an email at xfilestruth.live.com or visit our website, xfilestruth.com. The truth is still out there, people, and it's never been more dangerous. Next time on X-Files Truth, while spending the Christmas holiday with her family, Scully receives a mysterious phone call. She is summoned to help a desperately ill child whose tragic history is inexplicably linked to her own. postmodern Prometheus and remember as always if you're interested in the music that you heard on the show today you can find out who it was by just going to xfilestruth.com and feel free to send us any suggestions for songs to use on upcoming episodes too I'll definitely get that song in there for you hopefully it'll be relative that's how I do it it's got to have some relevance to the show or you can send it to us, just attach it as an mp3 file to xfilestruth at live.com. And that about does it for the postmodern Prometheus. We will see you next month for A Christmas Carol, even though it'll be June. Did you like that one, puppies? made this 20th century box lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details